Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is episode nine. And here is a snippet from this week's guest. Letting our kids fight their own battles sometimes or letting our kids work together to problem solve, even when that battle doesn't get fought, that's so important. That was Jessica Leahy, an educator, writer, and speaker. Jessica has been featured in the New York Times, PBS, The Atlantic, and on the Today Show. She is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. I don't even have kids, and I found Jessica's book completely fascinating. And if you don't have kids, I think that you'll still find a lot of value in this podcast. It's really common these days for us to be so focused on results, on our kids' grades or on our title at work, or even if we're athletes, on our results. And that can actually be quite damaging. I know for certain, for me growing up, I was always very focused on my grades and my love of learning actually took a hit because of that. So Jessica talks about how you can work with your kids and how you can make learning and the process of learning be what is a value over the validation of grades. She also talks about how to motivate kids and how to have healthy relationships between parents and teachers. When Jessica travels around doing her public speaking, she works with not only just students, but the teachers and their parents as well to create an environment that is great for kids to learn and to feel comfortable making mistakes and to use those failures as moments of learning and opportunities for growth. Jessica really believes in autonomy and letting kids take personal responsibility for long-term growth, even though sometimes it's really hard to sit back and let your kids just make mistakes right in front of you. I hope you enjoy this thought-provoking exchange with Jessica Leahy. So let's get into it. Thanks so much, Jessica Leahy, for joining us today on the show. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and today we have a special co-host, my husband, Matt Ioannis. Hello, everybody. And I really am excited about speaking with Jessica because she has an amazing book called The Gift of Failure. And while Matt and I do not have kids. It's so fascinating what's in this book about how to motivate kids, how to interface with teachers and with their coaches, and how to help them with homework, even how to get them to not forget stuff and be on time. So Jessica, what what motivated you to uh, write this book? Well, I've been a teacher for a really long time. I've been a teacher for almost 20 years, and I became a parent at about the same time. I had my first son, who's now about to head off to college, Benjamin, when I went into my first classroom, when I was first stepping into the teaching role. And, you know, over time, I started to realize that something about the way we incentivize kids, the way we reward kids, was not just undermining their motivation to learn. I actually began to suspect that it was undermining their ability to learn. And um, as a parent, you know, that's frustrating. But also as a teacher, it's, you know, it, it makes it so that I can't even do my job in, a, in an effective way. So I was worried about my students and I was worried about my own kids. I was also, you know, being really judgmental toward the <laughs> parents of my students until I realized I was doing the same thing to my own kids. And I embarked on this couple years of research to, you know, to figure out how to not just how it all works according to the research, but also how to turn it around. I mean, if I'm overparenting my own kids, how do I back that up? And a lot of this also came out of the fact that I realized when I started reading Carol Dweck's Mindset, which I highly recommend, that I just have this really unfortunate fixed mindset about my own intelligence. And so it wasn't just about my kids. It was also about how I learn and how I can become a better learner. So there were a lot of reasons <laughs> and it's sort of a lot of roads led to this book. Yeah, Carol Dweck is definitely one of my favorite psychologists in her book mm -hmm. mindset. Matt and I both listened to it on audiobook on a drive. Mm -hmm. And man, some of those topics in there just really hit home because perfectionism is something that I've always had to wrestle with, especially mm -hmm. in school and also as a professional athlete. And the idea of just being able to turn growth versus fixed mindset and realize that, wow, when you call somebody talented or gifted and you just say, hey, like you got you just reward their results instead of their hard mm -hmm. work was just this light bulb that went on. 
Well, I, about the same time, I realized a couple of things. Number one, I looked back on, I went to law school to study juvenile law. I was positive I was going to be a juvenile attorney. I ended up going into teaching instead, but I loved law school and I worked really, really hard. And I just kind of assumed that it would be not easy, but I, I thought I'd do great. You know, I, that was sort of my job. I'd always been the one, you know, the academic success had always been my thing. And when I didn't do well, when I did really poorly, actually, on my first exam, my first instinct, my very very first instinct after seeing that grade was to turn around and walk toward the dean's office and quit law school. Not, you know, and luckily I ran into a friend who was like, you know, or, <laughs> or maybe you could go talk to the professor and, you know, figure out how to do better next time or, you know, any of these other really great options that I might have thought of if I'd had a more sort of growth mindset about my own intelligence and my own abilities. Of course, I did badly on my first law school exam. I didn't take any practice exams and I, you know, I, it was the first time I'd taken law school exams. Of course I didn't do well. There's like a, there's a way to do them. I didn't know how to do it. So, you know, I was a little bit horrified by my own sort of examination of how I've approached learning in many times in my life. So I sort of set about to change that for myself as well. I think it's an interesting concept that the fixed versus growth mindset is not all the way across the board for everybody. So you can have a very much growth mindset about one part of your life, but fixed about mm -hmm. another. And I think yeah. maybe as how would you relate that relate that back to parents? Like you could have this wonderful, well balanced, you know, growth mindset in your career, but when we, it comes we, to your kids, you we might can not. have a really. Fun yeah. I think that we can have fixed mindset about our own stuff, but really where it tends to come out and create real damage is when we have a fixed mindset about our own kids. And that can be a lot of different things. That can be, you know, we assign a role. This is the good kid. This is the bad kid. This is the misbehaving kid. This is the kid that's always the placator, you know, that kind of thing. And I fall victim to that all the time. I have two very different children and you know, it's really easy to say this is the X kid and this is the Y kid. And sort of that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But also just thinking about how we praise our kids for their work. We tend to really focus on the product instead of the process. We send, tend to talk about the things that are easy to measure, well, that we think are easy to measure, which it turns out are not, like the grades or the scores or whether or not they got honors or whether or not they got a trophy. And we tend to not talk a lot about that process of learning, which, you know, in my mind is way more important than the actual end point. The, you know, if learning really is a lifetime thing, then we have to be talking more about that process rather than the end product. Because, you know, there is no real end to learning. It's a continual process. Yeah, for sure. I think that our society definitely is into cutting out the process and rewarding the value of hard work altogether because, you always read online like the quick hacks to get to the end yeah. quicker or take this magic pill and in three days you'll have six pack abs. And <laughs> that starts really from a young age because at least when I was going through school, we are rewarded and, and graded with a letter or a number that says you are good or you are bad. Right. And that's really hard because it puts a lot of pressure on not only the kids, but on the parents. And it was interesting for me because Matt, when he went to school, I went to school in the United States and he went to school in Canada. There was an yeah, interesting educational protocol. Both my parents were teachers, so it helped in this situation, but they had this system called widely held expectations. Mm -hmm. And in kindergarten age, they, they tested every kid and then they predetermined what grade you would get all the way through your elementary school years. So at about huh. grade three, I figured out that I, no matter what I did, no matter how hard I worked, it'd always be the same grade. Right. And so I just stopped caring and I would hand in garbage and I would get the same grade. It, would, it actually was completely crushing. Thankfully, my mother was a learning assistance teacher and understood sort of how to try to get my motivation back on track. But ever since that early start to school, it's been a strange and weird and wonderful way to see my, my educational career morph and change. Well, that happens all over the place. I mean, number one, we here in the United States, we're huge fans of IQ tests. We feel like, oh, we need to test kids early on. And the problem is, as I wrote about in The Atlantic in an article about why we shouldn't give kids IQ tests, I interviewed someone named Scott Barry Kaufman, who wrote a great book called Ungifted. 
And he, his argument there is, you know, IQ tests can't test everything. It can't capture creativity, can't capture all kinds of things. So Scott, who actually had been a special ed kid when he was young, has set out on his career in his, his entire career is about coming up with a measure of intelligence that's all inclusive of all the different things that we, that add up to whatever this thing is called intelligence. And I was in Northern Ireland last year in a whole bunch of schools. And one of the things they do there is at 12, I believe, they test kids into either an academic track or a trade track. And there's really no mobility between the two. So it's sort of like saying, okay, well, here you go. At 12, you're not smart enough to be in the academic track. And then they wonder why the kids in the trade track are dissatisfied with school, why they're feeling frustrated in school. Well, you know, of course they're feeling frustrated in school because you told them from the very first day they start there that they're incapable of success. So it stinks. It's it's a really bad rap to give kids. I feel terrible for kids who have to live under that. But we do it too. Like I said, we do it in terms of IQ tests. We do it in terms of reading groups. We do it, you know, we have to figure out ways to allow kids room to grow. And, and some of that comes down to the way we grade and some comes down to this thing called, you know, differentiated instruction and how we can put kids in groups so that they have room to go as opposed to, you know, get locked within one label. So what's the best way whenever you're as a teacher and the research that you've seen, what is the best way to go about rewarding kids for their hard work and for their results? Again, it really comes back to the value being on the process over the product. I think, you know, the nice thing is in the United States, we're seeing an increase in project-based learning and student-led inquiry. And if you watch, there's a fantastic documentary called uh, Most Likely to Succeed, where it's based at High Tech High out in California. And one of the things they do there is very much a project-based approach to learning where, you know, they have all these concepts and then the, the kids kind of determine how they're in, investing where that's going to take them. And that is a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do well, and yet they seem to be doing it really, really well. Also, grading kids not Grades are a disaster, A through F grades anyway, are a disaster, mainly because that gives parents and gives other teachers no information. You know, here are the expectations. You know, we have this thing called the Common Core. It happens to have a set of mastery expectations for each grade year. Say, look, here's the expectations for the things this kid needs to learn this year in order to progress on to the next year, progress on to the next year. What can your kid do and what can your kid not do? So when you get a grade report or you get a report card, it actually has a list of competencies. And you could say, oh, look, my kid can add two fractions with the same denominator, but can't add two fractions with a different denominator. That's information that teachers and parents can use to help their kids learn better. So, you know, there are a lot of different things we could do to improve the way we are assessing, the way we are grading, the way we are praising our kids in school so that it's really about the learning and not about the grade. Yeah, I'm really curious to, to hear your thoughts on on motivation. I think with Having kids, there's got to be a fear of how do I get my kids to love school? How do I get my mm-hmm. kids to to want to perform and be curious? But I think there's a worry by by parents that they need so much guidance and all right. the way through. And so two things: how do you motivate them, and when when is the right time to start stepping away? Do you do this when right. they're when they're 12 or 15 or two, or how do you how do you go about that? Well, the problem with stepping away, uh, you know, that's a gradual process that we're talking about. But, okay, in order to raise intrinsically motivated kids, in order to get kids intrinsically motivated, motivated to learn for the sake of learning because they want to learn as opposed to you need to give kids some autonomy, which means that you give them some control over the details of whatever it is they're doing, if it's homework or if it's schoolwork, if it's their social life, whatever that thing is, or sports or whatever. Then we need kids to feel competent, not confident, competent kids. Competence is confidence based on actual experience doing things so that like, you know, if I give the kids a a certain Latin sentence that's really easy and then I give it to them in a slightly more difficult fashion and then I give them an even harder one, the kids aren't just confident that they can complete this harder sentence. They feel pretty competent because they've been led, you know, through the process of, of learning slightly harder and harder and harder things. And then number three, kids need to be connected. And and connection is, yeah, it's about social relationships and stuff like that, but it's also about connecting 
what we're trying to teach kids to the world, to the place where they're going to live and, and to the things they want to do with their lives to show that they have efficacy out there in the world. So there are three different main aspects to this. And when I talk to teachers, I talk mostly in terms of, you know, making content relevant for kids so that, you know, if you're teaching about geometry, you can say, look, this is how a bridge is built that, you know, that bridge you drive over on your way to school every day that works because of these triangles or these arches and helping kids see that, you know, if you learn this thing here about these triangles and these arches here, you could go out there and build bridges someday. That's how you get kids interested. Is that hard? Yeah, it's really, really hard, especially when you have a huge number of students that you're teaching. But in terms of getting kids interested in material for the sake of the material itself, for the sake of the knowledge and the learning itself, that's how you do it. Yeah, I know that for me in school, I was always rewarded, like I felt loved more by getting good grades. Or I remember in middle school, I don't know if you remember POGS, but you could bring your report card in and you would get, if you got a certain number of A's or B's, you would get a certain number of free POGS from the store. So basically the store was giving you, paying you for your grades. And I heard of people whose parents would pay them to Uh get an A. When I go around and talk to kids, I actually have the teachers and administrators close their eyes and then I have the, te- the kids raise their hands if they're being compensated in any way for their grades. That includes money, that includes gifts, that includes, you know, lo- more love for good grades than for bad grades. And most of the kids raise their hands. When it's just for material things, it's usually about 20% of the audience raises their hands. And obviously it depends on the school and just depends on the socioeconomic region. But most kids, when you include, you know, do you feel like your parents love you more when you get good grades, most of the hands go up. So, you know, we're, we're rewarding kids for grades in a lot of way. And, and the POGS thing that you mentioned, you know, picture this. I remember getting, seeing Pizza Hut coupons for, you know, if you read a certain number of summer reading books, And what we do is we are essentially telling kids that we value pizza more than we value the books they read. Because if we valued the books and the reading more, we would give kids books for eating pizza. The reward is the thing, right? That's the thing you're working towards. That's the valuable thing, not the means to the end. So yeah, I kind of wish it were the other way around, but we tend to reward kids in all kinds of ways, whether it's, you know, class dojo or all of these other systems where you can enter in wards, sticker charts, that kind of stuff. That's sort of the way we've, it's pay for play. That's what, you know, the way it's always been in our economy. So that's the way it is in our parenting. So exactly what would you say to your, if you were a parent and you want to, mm-hmm. you want to talk about your kid, to your kid about their grades, how do you make them feel loved no matter what? I do this when I'm out speaking, I do this little example about, you know, when your kid comes home with an A versus when your kid comes home with a C and or a D or an F or whatever. And and I make a joke, actually, that I call a B minus and an F apparently are the same thing now <laughs> with where parents are concerned. The way you get around that is by treating the A and the C in the same way in the sense that you're always talking about what happened. Where did that grade come from? What did you do to get that grade? What could you do better next time? What didn't you do that maybe you'll do next time? What did you not do this time that you will do next time? You know, you can even compare to other people. Oh, you say that your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? There are all kinds of ways about talking to talk about the actual learning that took place or didn't take place and the way you do that. And and that's why in our house, Goals. We try to talk about, oh man, you know, that, that magazine I really want to write for rejected me again. But this time they told me that I was off topic or my tone was wrong or whatever. So next time I'm going to try a whole different tone and see how that works. So we have all these constant conversations about how to do better next time. And we just don't put the report card on the refrigerator. I don't look at the parent portal for the report, you know, where parents can log on and look at their kids' grades. I've never done that as a parent. I use it as a teacher, have never done it as a parent. I try to, at every turn, let my kids know that what I care about is their learning. And I'm not just saying that, you know, I I actually mean it because lots of parents say it. Yeah, yeah, what I really care about is the learning. But then what we show them is, you know, no, what we really care about are those letters that come home on that piece of paper, because that's what colleges are going to care about. And that's what uh, eventual employers are going to care about, all that sort of stuff. And kids, 
You know, even if we banish that stuff from home, it's not like they're not hearing it. They'll hear it everywhere else. They hear it all over the place. You know, when we say, oh, you know, you better do well on this French test, these grades, your junior year, they are so important. These are the grades that the colleges will see. This is not news when we say this. So it would be great if at home we could talk more about learning and talk more about personal goals. I was reading through your book. I just had a question about as a teacher, when you look at a large class, and I've done a lot mm-hmm. of volunteering with groups of kids in all kinds of situations, there's such a huge diversity of personalities and backgrounds. And so as a teacher, how do you tailor that to a class of 30 kids effectively? And then as a parent, if you have a, you know, three, four five kids with very different uh, personalities, how do you tailor that effectively? Or can you do that with a large group of kids? You know, I, I really think you can. And the key to all of that has comes down to relationships. And I've written a lot about the research that's coming out about the power that teacher-student relationships have to overcome achievement gaps. You know, there was a, a study that I wrote about for The Atlantic about relationships. And I think it was called like Teachers Get to Know Your Students. It had to do with Uh, They looked at a highly diverse school, a school with a huge achievement gap between poor and rich and high achieving and low achieving. And they went about in a concerted way to sort of show teachers and students that they had some similarities, not like highly personal things, just some preferences about, you know, favorite color and favorite sports teams and stuff like that. And just knowing more about each other allowed the teachers to overcome and the students to overcome this achievement gap by like six, they closed it by like 65%. And this was a preliminary study that they're in the process of trying to replicate do simply ask talk to your students a little bit more and when you have uh, you know when you're a parent and you have kids you tend to know your kids pretty well. You know the way your kids tick. You know what they're interested in, what they're not interested in, and what they're what the good levers are in terms of the things they really care about. And knowing those things gives you a huge amount of power to make learning relevant for them. And yeah, it's really hard. I teach right now. I teach in a drug and alcohol rehab where I teach kids from 13 all the way up to 18 with hugely diverse abilities. Some kids can barely read. At you know nowhere they don't read anywhere near their grade level. And yet other kids have come from privilege and have been, you know, at really hoity-toity private schools and, you know, have totally different ability levels than the other kids. So what you need to do is talk to them about what what's relevant to them, what's important to them. You know, I use the example of, you know, getting kids to read. If uh, it's, it's like, it's my superpower, but I think it's mainly because I talk to the kids about what they care about. And I figure out that even if they say they don't read, I can still find something that they're interested in that they might want to know more about, whether that's a sport or, you know, whatever that thing is. So getting to know the kids, I I think, is the really important first step and showing them that you care about them and that you have faith in their abilities and you have faith in their ability to grow. And is that harder with a huge student population? Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I've taught in big public high schools with lots and lots and lots of kids, and it's really hard to get to know each each one. But it's also extraordinarily important. Um, how important emotions are to learning. If you look at, there's a great book called Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys that talks about what really works well for boys in education. And it turns out a big chunk of that is relationships with teachers. So again, over and over and over again, it keeps coming back to relationships. So the harder you work at those relationships, I think the more likely you are to engage kids in learning for the sake of learning. Yeah, I know. I remember, like, you always remember the teachers that had a strong influence on you. You can mm-hmm. always think back, and it's really cool to be a teacher in that regard because of the impact you can have on somebody's life. The teachers yeah. where I had a personal relationship with, which people thought I was a dork because I actually loved school and I loved yeah. my teachers, and I always was friends with my, or I thought I was friends with my teachers as a kid. And I think that that was important because I also was motivated because I wanted to do well in their classes because I was engaged in the material and I actually liked how the teacher taught me things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's interesting is the times that I'm positive a student really dislikes me because I've had to hold them accountable for something that they did. And then I'll hear like years later, thank you for holding me accountable. Or, you know, it's sometimes it's not the students that I have the closest relationship with or that I feel like I know the best or that I feel like I've, you know, had the most positive relationship with that, that end up being the ones that come back and, and say thank you that they, that I had an impact on their life. And I think that's important to remember is that, you know, it's easy to assume 
attention that we affect the most, but sometimes it's the ones that we think aren't paying attention, that are really, really hearing us and really not just hearing what teachers have to say, but watching what teachers do. I've had students tell me that they, the most important teachers to them were the ones that sort of modeled the kind of person they wanted to be. And the the other interesting thing is it doesn't have to be a teacher that establishes a great relationship with a kid and makes school relevant for a kid. There's one kid that I was talking to about the most influential instructor and teacher in his life. And he said he couldn't name one. And I said, oh, come on, there's got to be someone. You're 17 years old. And he said, well, there was this guy, you know, whenever I would get thrown out of class, I'd have to go to this room at where it was kind of like a detention sort of rubber room. And it was staffed by this guy guy who became the biggest influence on him. And this guy wasn't really even a teacher. He was just this guy who staffed the room, but knew him. And he said, and the 17-year-old told me that um, he wasn't sure he was going to go back to school, but if he did, it would be for this person because this person would be the only one who would care if he didn't come back. So it can be anyone at school that can really make a difference to a kid. And it's important that we remember that and that all the people like the the custodians, the janitors, the groundskeeper, that all of those people are part of the sort of the bigger network for helping teens or kids want to be at school. Yeah. And I think navigating the waters of you mentioned if the kid doesn't like the teacher, but what about parent teacher relationships? (laughs) Because I'm sure those are tricky. That's a toughie, mainly because kids know how we feel about their teachers. And if we dislike a teacher for whatever reason, our kid is going to be less likely to like that teacher. And relationships are so incredibly important to learning. That whole dynamic of setting a kid up to not respect their teacher, to not like their teacher is devastating to the learning process. It's just going to shoot a big hole in the in the whole educational process for the year. I mentioned this study from Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys, where they asked boys what their favorite lesson was, what the most effective lesson was they ever had. And they said, but don't tell us about the teacher. Just tell us about the lesson. We only want to know about the lesson. And the boys could not do it. They could not separate the lesson from the teacher. If the lesson was effective, it was because the teacher was effective. And so it really, again and again, I have to remember, you know, there may be a teacher of my kid that teaches my kid that I don't particularly like, or I, as an ed, as a teacher, I certainly have opinions about pedagogical style and, and what works in education and what doesn't. But one of my jobs is to find a way to help that relationship or I'm going to make things worse. There's just no way around that. It's sort of like, you know, bad in a divorce situation, bad mouthing the other parent that just is really stressful and upsetting for the kid. And it's the same for students when we bad mouth their teachers and yet the kids are expected to, you know, be on the same team with their, you know, their teacher. It's, it just is devastating for all the way around and, and emotionally upsetting for the kids as well. Yeah, I think that the whole concept of school is interesting because everybody has their own opinion as to whether school or college is valuable. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, like, you don't need to go to college. That's stupid. Uh-huh. But I don't know. What would you say to people that are kind of battling with this? Should we value education because it's the system or should we not? You know, I don't I don't think college is for everyone and that has to be okay. I often tell the story of someone I know that was too ashamed to tell her family. Um, she went to a high achieving high school. You know, everyone went on to four year college. And what she was too ashamed to tell people was that she didn't want to go to college. She wanted to be a hairstylist. And she ended up going off to college because that's what everyone did. But it was a huge waste of time and money. I mean, from my perspective, hardly ever is learning something a waste of time. But in this case, when you're talking about this huge investment, and it certainly wasn't something she needed for the job she wanted to do. And it wasn't until she quit college and then went on to uh, hair wanted to do, um, was she happy? And, you know, that's a lot of secrets to keep, a lot of distrust, a lot of, you know, feeling as if she's letting other people down, and also a lot of time wasted not doing the things she really wants to do. And the thing that I really valued about my older son's high school is that they have a trade track that's valued as much as the academic track. And so, you know, it was just at graduation and there were all kinds of awards, but they weren't just academic awards. They were awards for auto repair and awards for plumbing and awards for culinary and all this sort of stuff, because there are so many different ways to succeed in this world. We've just, unfortunately, as a culture, we've narrowed it down to, in order to be successful in this world, you need a six-figure salary at least, and you need to end up on Wall Street or to be a lawyer or a doctor. And that's just not for everybody. And that, for the kids, that that's not going to be their path 
I really, I worry for what we're doing to them. I, I worry about what we're doing um, when we make a very diverse world full of kids adhere to one path forward. Um, I think that's a really sad state of affairs. Yeah, I think that the pressure of that is really difficult. And even for people who went through the educational process, they got a degree in something, and now they're working a job and say that now they don't like it anymore. They don't like what they mm -hmm. committed to at age 18, but <laughs> they, you know, they invested all this money and now they're working this career. Maybe they have a mortgage and it's really common for people to want to make a change, but they're too afraid to because of the path they've, that they've committed to. And I think it's important. You know, change to, is really, really scary. And sure. sorry, no, I, I interrupted because you cut out and I assumed you were done. No, go ahead. Uh, and well, I, I was just going to say that I am like the poster child for not committing to one thing or the other until I got to my late, let's see, when was it? My really my uh, about 30. I mean, I, I tried lots of different things, which, you know, unfortunately we don't allow kids to do anymore. We make kids commit to a sport really early on. We make kids commit to a, a musical instrument really early on, and we don't give them the chance to explore lots of different things. And I was allowed to explore lots of different things. And so since college, I've been everything from, I worked in information technology. I was a speechwriter for a governor. I was a teacher. I was, I studied law. I got to try lots of different things. And, you know, all of those jobs I had, whether it was working as a temp and working in information technology and all these different jobs, you know, they've all led somewhere. They've all been a part of, you know, what I ended up becoming. But I don't think that what I've become would have, I, I wouldn't have been qualified to do what I do now right out of college. So there is necessarily a winding path to get there. And it makes me, I just feel really bad for kids who are expected to know exactly what they want to be today when they're young. And that's hardly ever what we end up being. And if it is, it's hardly ever what we end up being happily and for the rest of our lives. So I, you know, I, I wish we were giving kids more chances to explore. And just to, that seems to tie in a little bit just to the title of your book, even the gift of failure and maybe how yeah. our society views failure as such a bad thing. And, and then we grow into this, you know, young adult and adult who's terrified to make a change because what if I fail? Um, yeah, I, there are certain industries that really get it. Like I've written about design thinking and design thinking is a process of creating a product or an idea through many, many iterations of, you know, with the assumption of failure, that the assumption of things aren't going to work. You know, a lot of the sort of the new economy of information technology and, and the digital age assumes that there are going to be many iterations before the final product works. And there are some areas that are sort of dealing with that well, but other places, you know, in schools right now, we say, look, there is no room for failure because every grade counts from so early on. It used to be junior year. And before that, it was like, oh, no, starting freshman year, it all counts. And now it's starting in junior high, it all counts, middle school, it all counts. Oh, you actually, it starts in sixth grade because your placement in middle school, which will affect your placement in high school, all of that counts. So we end up on this sort of single path where you can't ever make any mistakes from a very young age. And what that's doing is heightening the anxiety in kids. You know, we used to see a few anxious kids here and there and a few perfectionist kids here and there, but now it's more the, the rule in the kids that I see that they can't, they refuse to do anything unless they're fairly sure they can do it perfectly the first time out. And none of us can do anything perfectly the first time. You know, kids will say to me, no, I don't need to write for you in this class because I know how to write. I wrote, you know, my senior thesis. Now I'm done. That's not how writing or math or science works. If, if it was, we would have no unanswered questions out there. And we have plenty of them. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the pressure on kids to perform well, to make sure they get into the right program, the right track, the right school. What advice do you have for parents that are thinking about their kids' educational future in terms of selecting schools or how important is that? So a lot of parents will come to me after my speaking engagement and say, yeah, 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 this is all lovely. This all sounds great, but college. <laughs> and my answer is almost always, look, number one, the media has scared people into believing that it's it's become much more competitive to get into college. And that's really not true across the board. It is true for a selective group, whether it's the top 50 or top 100 colleges in the, in the nation. Um, there are 2,800 accredited colleges and universities in this country. And there's a fantastic book that I recommend over and over and over again called Colleges That Change Lives. And it's about 
colleges that actually do what colleges are supposed to do, which is help kids figure out what they want to be and who they want to be and what they want to be and how they're going to achieve that, as opposed to a college that says, oh, good, you already know you're going to be a lawyer. So let's put you on lawyer track from day one. And we'll just assume that's all you're going to focus on until you graduate and go to law school. Colleges that change lives, I think, is a godsend to parents. And and I know that after talking to a lot of the kids that have gone to these colleges that are in this book, they've you know, I went in um, as an open book, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And, and I discovered it there as opposed to, you know, having written a college application essay already knowing what you want to do and, and assuming that the college is going to just get you to point B. There, relax <laughs> would be, I guess, my first order of business to, you know, take the long sort of view instead of the short view and to really focus on the process over the product. It'd be interesting if colleges got rid of like looking at grades and GPAs all together as how to assess a student coming in. What oh, you, some are. Oh, are they? That's what are yeah, they looking so, at? Some of them. Well, some of the schools, like, for example, a couple of years ago, Harvard said, oh, we're going to do a more holistic approach to the student. We're going to look at the whole student, blah, blah, blah. And frankly, I'll believe that when I see it and when I see the results of that. I don't know. I'm color me skeptical on this one. I'm generally a very optimistic person, but consider me skeptical on that one. I think we need there are other great ways that colleges could approach, you know, we could have it when people go off after medical school to study medicine and to finish their training somewhere, there's a thing called a match where an algorithm looks at the person going off to the fellowship program and the fellowship program and matches them based on needs and wants of both. You know, this program is looking for kids like this and this kid is looking for a program like this. And oh, look, here's an algorithm that's matched them. Or if we were looking, instead of looking at name brand, we were looking at if he wants to go, wants to be a history teacher, well, obviously you want to look at schools that have really strong history programs, and that should be more important to you than whether or not they're in the top 50 for brand name recognition, which is BS to begin with. And colleges claim that they don't care that much, but they certainly do care when they go up in the numbers. So I wish we would throw away U.S. News and World Report. I wish we would pick up the book called About Colleges That Change Lives, and we could start thinking more broadly about what it means to get an education as opposed to what it means to have a resume building name, throwing a lot of money at a name. And also the other big thing I tell parents a lot is kids who can self-advocate, kids who can go out there and be confident and talk to adults and can problem solve and can go out there and be confident and competent in their language those are the kids that are going to get a good education anywhere. A kid that goes to an Ivy League school who can't speak up for themselves, who don't know what they want, who don't know how to problem solve, those kids are going to get a middling education no matter what brand name school they've gone to because they don't know how to speak up for themselves. And I, again, I really worry about those kids. I worry about the kids whose parents have run interference for them their whole lives and have solved all their problems for them so that, you know, magically they go out at 18 and parents expect them to be able to solve their own problems and they can't. And those are the parents that colleges are just moaning and groaning about now because colleges are having to create new dean positions like dean of family affairs. It's like a dean of parents so that the person at the college who has to run interference for the parents who call and say, you know, I want to talk about my kid's grade. 21-year-old kid, which is ludicrous. And yet the colleges are actually, because they need to be competitive, colleges are creating things like family orientation, which is beyond me. Families are creating, or colleges are creating like these dean of family affairs so that there is someone who can cater to parents, you know, need to problem solve for their children. And we just have to back off on that. We have to stop doing that. There has to be a point at which childhood ends and a child can go out and start learning for themselves and become an adult. Yeah, I think managing expectations of parents and also how parents judge their own success. Like, am I a good parent? I yeah. think those are, are really difficult questions for parents to answer for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you actually hit on one of the big topics when I'm out there speaking that I talk about, which is how do you answer that question of, of was I a good parent today? And for a lot of people, and for me, always, for me, this has been something I'm able to check off when I feel good about my parenting. And, and when I say when I feel good, I mean, like when I get that warm, fuzzy feeling because I protected my kid or I saved my kid from being teased or I saved my kid from feeling bad or I saved my kid from having to stay in from recess or I saved my kid by taking the cleats when they left them at home so that they could be a part of soccer practice. 
that's how I've always been able to check that box off. But the problem is, is that that's certainly not how my kid is going to become more competent. That's not how they're, you know, whether or not I'm a good parent today is very different from whether or not my child is going to grow into a good adult. So I've had to shift my priority on a day-to-day basis about my own parenting and shift that onto my children. And are they learning something today? Did I take away any opportunities for them to learn today and why? Because when I, every time you rescue a kid, that's a learning opportunity that's lost and may not present itself again. We always seem to think that there's going to be another opportunity to teach our kids to fill out forms or talk on the telephone to another adult or ask for help at a store, whatever that thing is. And yet we keep doing it over and over again. The next opportunity doesn't come. And then we've lost all of those incredibly valuable opportunities. I was thinking about this when I travel a lot for work and often my kids will go with me. And when I walk up to, I'm always so focused in the airport on getting from point A to point B. And so I walk up to the kiosk and I enter all the information really fast for self-check-in. And I realized my kid's standing there not paying attention to what I'm doing and just looking around the terminal. And there's going to come a time at which they're going to have to walk up to this kiosk and do the exact same thing, depending on the technology, of course. And now they walk up to the kiosk and we talk it through or they do it or they there's this every single day there is an opportunity for me to teach my kids something new and making sure I honor those opportunities has become a priority for me that's how I know I'm a good parent that's how I'm able to check that box off today so as you watch your eldest getting out of high school into college and making big decisions about life direction, how hard is it to stop yourself or where do you stop yourself at giving advice of career choice and what that might look like if they make this decision? Those are really big, big decisions at this point. Yeah, well, we I mean, we just went through this with choosing a college and I had written an article for your teen magazine called something like college admissions. It's their journey, not yours. And then I wrote another piece for grown and flown about how I when it comes to my own advice, I'm not very good at taking it because you know, when we went off to look at colleges, my job, as far as I was concerned, was to accompany my kid on the trips, drive before he got his driver's license. And then once he had his driver's license to go along and get to spend the day with him and listen to him while he talked through various aspects of what he liked and didn't like about the school and basically be a sounding board. But of course, I went into it with my own history with certain schools and what I thought would be a perfect match for him. And I, as much as possible, I tried to keep that to myself sometimes to not great effect, but I did my best. And I really do believe that when it came down to it, the college that he chose is the one that probably is the best fit for him because he knew the right questions to ask. And the right questions to ask came out of books like Colleges That Change Lives and uh, listening to his college advisor and not man, will they take me? Will that college accept me? Am I going to be enough for that college? But really looking for what he needed out of a school. And I feel like he did that. I'm really proud of him for that. I wish I could be a little prouder of myself for completely restraining myself, but I think I did okay. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting thing is support for the parents. Like in your book, you mentioned a story where you were trying to teach your kids responsibility so that they could remember their homework, taking it to school. (laughs) And you saw them working hard at it. And then the little guy left his homework on the table and you were going to the school later anyway. Yeah. And how hard that was for you to not take the homework. Well, and I also got feedback from another parenting writer who basically said, no, you're completely wrong. That part of our job as parents, as family, are to be it's to be a support for our kids and to let our kids know that if no one else has their back, that, you know, we have their back. And the tricky part there was she compared it to my taking my husband his phone cord when his his charging cord when he forgets it at home. And Yeah, I've done that a lot. (laughs) But in the end, I had to realize, you know, the thing is, my husband's an adult and he can solve his own problems. He's figured that out. He's almost 50 years old. And I'm not my husband's parent. I'm not parenting. I'm not raising my husband. I am raising a kid (laughs) who... Raising a kid who's having really specific issues with a very specific aspect of getting his homework in, and that's putting it in the backpack. And we had been working on the homework process for months. And if I took the homework that day, I would have really thwarted a huge opportunity to learn. It ended up 
being the most important opportunity that day ended up being pivotal to him remembering because he had to sit in, sit with his teacher and his teacher finally said, look, Finn, this is just has gotten ridiculous. It's become a habit and you have to come up with a strategy. And that session, that having to sit down with an adult, which was a big deal in the first place because that scared him, that whole process of having to sit down with the adult and come up with a strategy, he still uses that strategy today. And it's been three years, almost four years since that day. So that strategy has ended up being the one that has worked for him and it's stuck. If I had taken the homework that day, then he never would have discovered, or at least not in some the same sort of timely fashion, discovered that strategy that worked for him. So, you know, I'm really indebted to that teacher for being the one who did sort of hold him accountable. And instead of running to the school that day and being angry that a teacher disciplined my child or that a a teacher held my kid accountable, instead, I said to the teacher, thank you for holding my kid accountable because he learned something from it. And I owe you for that. You know, I'm really grateful for that. Um, More and more often, the story tends to be that the parent emails that as soon as the kid gets home and says, how dare you discipline my child? I've had, I watched a parent waggle her finger in my boss's face one time and say, you will not discipline my child without my permission. And while the child was standing there, and now the kid knows teachers are toothless, that there's no, they have no power to hold kids accountable. Just can't because parents said so. So again, that gets back to relationships, parent-teacher relationships, which have, you know, gone down the can a little bit since in the past 10 years, since that whole relationship has become more adversarial. But that day was really important. And I really do point to that day as one of the most important, the big, the day that I could have made a huge mistake by thinking I was helping. I, I could have, could have screwed that one up big time. Yeah. The line between just being a hard ass and also trying to do somebody a favor by trying to teach them. Yeah. Even in our daily lives, like away from kids, like you mentioned with your husband and the, the phone cord or mm-hmm. in the workplace, like say you're somebody's boss and you're trying to teach them something. I don't know exactly how you would even try to translate that into the workplace. Well, I also wrote this other thing about uh, my son. My older son is a cross-country runner. And there was one day I, I missed a meet. I don't go to all of his meets. I go to the ones that he really wants me to go to because not they're not all not equal to him. And so I go to the important ones. And I didn't go to this one meet. And um, in that meet, he got tripped and spiked and I believe, this is in my limited understanding, I believe that the rules really were there should have been some sort of redo because he was tripped on purpose. Now, if I had been there and I had seen it in defense of my child, I very well could have gone to the refs and sort of, you know, made a big stink and all this other stuff I could have done because, you know, I'm doing what's on purpose by a kid on another team. And yet what happened was I wasn't there and the ref didn't, you know, the officials didn't see it. So what happened was my son's team rallied with him, pulled him back up to the front after he got up, he set a PR and he had one of the most important races of his high school career. If I had been there I would have screwed that up for him in just because I was trying to help letting our kids fight their own battles sometimes or letting our kids work together to problem solve when even when that battle doesn't get fought. That's so important. And I'm really, really grateful that I wasn't there to muck that one up. And I very well could have. That was a really big moment. And he, I know when he looks back on all the races he had in high school, that's one of the races he's most proud of. Well, we should start winding it down a little bit. Where is the best place for people to find you and to find all these great articles and books you're mentioning? Well, so if you go to jessicalahey.com, there are a couple things there. Number one, Gift of Failure. The book is there, obviously. There's a blog there where I answer a lot of reader questions. I try to answer one a day, not always on the blog, but I try to put some of them up on the blog. The show notes for my podcast are there. I do a podcast with my former New York Times editor, KJ Delantonia, about writing. It's called the hashtag AmWriting with Jess and KJ. And there's all sorts of stuff there, like my speaking stuff and my journalism and where you can find all my articles. Yeah, you're definitely everywhere. I, I, I looked at uh, all the places that you've been speaking. And, and <laughs> I bet that when you were finishing law school and you mentioned and I heard somewhere where you thought maybe I want to be a teacher and you came home and you were so excited about teaching that this path that you've been led down that you've forged for yourself has changed so many lives and has gone in a direction you probably didn't even imagine. Well, when I was first asked to teach in law school, I mean, I really did walk in that first day and teach that first class. 
I came home after that first class and my husband took one look at me and he said, are you even going to finish law school? Because it was so completely obvious that I was sunk, that I was going to be a teacher. And that was sort of, it, it was, I did finish law school, but I've been teaching ever since. And I'm, I'm so glad I discovered it. I'm so glad that, you know, these confluence of things came together so that I could, you know, step into my own classroom because it's been, I just, I love it so much. I, and, you know, I would love to be able to teach full time right now, but, you know, I'm on the road so much that I can only teach part time, but at least that scratches the itch for me. And I adore the students I teach now as challenging as they may be. Yeah. And that's such a great lesson in flexibility of saying, I went down this path and then you change directions completely. And I always say this to a lot of the people that follow me is you don't have to go down the way you always went. And right. if there's a door of opportunity opening for you and you're really passionate about it, be brave enough to go down that road. And it's okay if it doesn't go the way that you thought, but it could change your entire life. People ask me all the time if I regret having gone to law school, and I absolutely not. Number one, it helps me as a journalist. I, I write a lot about child welfare and juvenile justice, and I love writing about that stuff. So I write about it as opposed to practicing it. But also, some of my favorite journalists are former attorneys, and I think that is because law school teaches us to think in a much more linear way. I can be a pretty scattered down a defined path, and I think that was really good for me. So, you know, I, I really am glad I got that education. Yeah, I feel the same way. People say that about like I got my master's degree in electrical engineering and then I switched careers to go do marketing and then eventually just being a full time professional athlete. But mm -hmm. people say like, oh, you wasted all that time going to engineering <laughs> school. And it's like, well, no, that's actually really helped me be successful in my life because of the ways that I've been taught to think and the right. analytical and systemic ways of arranging problem and problem solving. Yeah, it taught you to be disciplined, too, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for giving us your time today. I know that all of the topics that we touched on are going to be really interesting to our listeners. And thanks to Matt. Yeah, and thanks, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be here. And, and thanks for your thoughts. It's really enlightening to hear your thoughts on education and motivation and, and kids and parents. Well, and I'm sorry you got sorted early on in your educational career, Matt. <laughs> That's right. It, act <laughs> it all worked out perfectly in the end. So it, it wasn't Good, that bad. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. All right. Well, thanks so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Wow. That was really interesting with Jessica. I definitely learned a lot of new things about not only how to talk to kids, but also how to talk to adults. Yeah, I was really impressed with her enthusiasm and her passion for helping students and parents and teachers all come together to get a better outcome. It's so refreshing to hear someone like Jessica, an educator and someone so accomplished, tell her story and also reminding us that it's not just the end result, the grade, the position, the place you get in a race that matters. It's the hard work leading up to it and really rewarding a person for effort. And I definitely do that a lot now in my communication with people as well. Absolutely. Her book, The Gift of Failure, was a really interesting conversation piece for us as we were doing research for the show. We learned a lot of new techniques to help motivate ourselves and not just kids. So it really applied to adults as well. So thanks so much for listening, you guys. It's so great to have actually a different type of person with different type of subject matter on this show. Jessica is really an accomplished person, and I'm really thankful to have her. Don't forget to come back next week and subscribe. There are some even more amazing people coming up on the show. And thank you to those of you who have sponsored the show using Patreon. It's really cool. And also to those of you who have left reviews. We're in Oregon this week doing a fun project about all the awesome trails and the communities behind the trails. It's been awesome riding fresh trails I've never seen before. And the people here are amazing and welcoming. And we even managed to sneak in a couple brewery tours too. Yeah, the beer in Oregon never disappoints me, that's for sure. Yes. Wishing you all the best success in your training and your adventures, and we'll see you back here next week. Bye.